Welcome to the Tolling Stone Podcast. I'm Garrett Ryan, and I'm joined today by Professor Brian Ward-Perkins. Professor Ward-Perkins, who has been at Oxford for many years, studies late antiquity, the period that includes, among much else, the decline and fall of the Western Roman Empire. Over the course of his career, he studied everything from the cities of late Roman Italy to the cult of the saints. But to non-specialists, he's most familiar as the author of the 2005 book, The Fall of Rome and the End of Civilization. Unlike most books with such dire titles, um, his book focuses less on why Rome collapsed than on what happened um, when the empire began to decline. And so I'd like to talk about that book today with Professor Ward Perkins, um, and more generally about how archaeological evidence illuminates and illustrates our understanding of ancient history. So Professor Ward Perkins, welcome to the program. Thank you. Um, very nice to be here. Oh, and likewise. Uh, this is a pleasure for me as well. I find this a wonderfully fascinating period to explore. Um, and so I want to just begin by, by saying, so the subtitle of your book is The End of Civilization, um, the collapse of this intricate and fragile world at once cultural and material that had been sustained in some important ways by the existence of the Western Roman Empire. Um, your book explores the evidence for that world's, that system's demise. And I wanted to start by asking um, how much seemingly unassuming potsherds and clay tiles can tell us about the consequences of Rome's fall. Okay. Well, I should first of all start by saying that I began life as both a historian and an archaeologist. So I've worked in the field quite a lot. And the most extraordinary thing that you notice when you're dealing with Roman sites and then post-Roman sites is the extraordinary decline in just the quantities of evidence. Uh, Roman sites produce masses of stuff. And for instance, field survey, where you walk over fields looking for sites, Roman sites are very easy to find. There are tiles all over the place. There are shiny bits of pot for you to pick up. Whereas early medieval sites, which are mainly made of wood with very little pottery, incredibly difficult to find. You can actually chart rural settlement in the Roman period in large parts of the empire very accurately. You can't do that in the early Middle Ages because the quantities of stuff drop off. But it's not just quantities. Pots are very, very good indicators of economic sophistication because you don't make a lot of money making an individual pot. You might, you know, if you're Picasso, but I mean, <laughs> an ordinary domestic pot sells for very little. They're difficult to transport. They're heavy. They're easy to break. Uh, so in a sense, they're not, they're sort of basic goods. Uh, and crucially, looking at them carefully, you can see how they've been made. Have they been made on a fast wheel? Are they standardized in size? Are they glazed uh, effectively and efficiently and to a standardized way? Uh, all those sorts of things are indicators. And furthermore, you can even tell where pots were made uh, because often we have the kiln site with the wasters and specific types come from specific kiln sites. And then if you're in any doubt, you can do uh, petrological analysis and actually look at the clay and look at the inclusions in the clay and work out where that clay came from. So from pots, you can tell where they're made, what sort of quantities they're made in, uh, how standardized are they, and what is the quality, and then crucially, what is their distribution. And mm -hmm. in the Roman period, there are 
massive, massive pottery industries, producing hundreds of thousands, indeed millions of pots to standardise types and distributing them very widely all over the Mediterranean in the late Roman period from North Africa particularly, but also even in a province like Britain, which is obviously slightly less developed, there were substantial pottery industries which were producing these goods to in large quantities and crucially to a very, very high standard. That pretty much goes in the post-Roman period. In Britain, it, it absolutely goes. There are no pottery industries after about 450 at the very latest. In the Mediterranean, people do continue to make pots, but the large-scale uh, pottery industries like that of North Africa completely disappear. The quantities drop off dramatically, and also the quality drops off dramatically. I mean, and the, the nice thing about pottery is it is a basic good. And I think you can reasonably argue that if you have a complex pottery industry, you've probably, well, I would, I would actually say certainly got uh, industries that are producing things like shoes, clothes, furniture, other basic things which don't happen to survive so well in the soil. Because I should have said the other wonderful thing about pottery, it survives mm -hmm. unbelievably well. It's a, a decent piece of pot is virtually indestructible. I think one can probably say with some confidence that 99% of the pots that were ever made in the Roman world exist <laughs> in bits somewhere. Uh, it, it's very, very durable. Oh, I, I believe it. I, once I remember I was walking in, um, in Alexandria Troas, um, you know, by, by China Kale, and it's not been excavated. Um, so it's just, you know, olive orchards and, you know, wheat fields. But uh, the farmer had tilled his fields recently and you could barely see soil. It was just a sea of Roman pottery. Every step was crunch, crunch, crunch. It must have been hundreds of thousands I could see, you know, within those few acres I was walking. Um, and it is. So, you know, I, I guess, you know, for, for me, um, you know, what astonishes me so much is how, uh, by our standards, an underdeveloped economy can produce so much um, and how it's, I guess, profitable, really, um, for people to make this low cost good for what seems to be a mass market. Mm. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that, and it, it, it is the only explanation. There has mm -hmm. to be an effective market and an effective distribution system. And as I say, pots are not easy to move because mm -hmm. they're heavy and they're friable. So right. if you can move pots over hundreds of kilometres, uh, you'll be moving other stuff as well. I mean, we do know about other stuff from documentary evidence, but mm -hmm. sadly, I mean, things like clothing and leather, unless, unless you've got a waterlogged deposits, they don't survive mm -hmm. at all. But I would say that pots are a very, very good indicator of, of, mm -hmm. all, of a whole range of goods, basic goods. Mm -hmm. and, and crucially, they're not, these are not aristocratic items. You actually find them in peasant contexts in the middle of the countryside. Mm -hmm. They're distributed very, very widely. It's something I was struck by when reading your book that, you know, obviously in the Middle Ages, there's a luxury market that survives to some degree in various sorts of goods, you know, uh, like um, 
oh, you know, uh, gold belt buckles, you know, mm. or, you know, a, a few finely made pieces of jewelry. But it's this mass market that vanishes, you know, the market for the middle and lower end. Um, and I think that's one of those things that, that feels most modern about the Roman economy, that it has this, again, a, a consumer element um, that we almost don't expect, I suppose, looking at it from the modern world. No, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, in the early Middle Ages, there are some wonderful things are made. I mean, you only mm-hmm. have to look at the Sutton Hoo mm-hmm. ship burial, which is of around 625 uh, in Britain. And the jewellery is magnificent uh, with inlaid garnet croissonne work. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that they make, which is spectacular, is very, very fine weaponry, mm-hmm. but very fine weaponry for the absolute elite. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Roman period, you have lots and lots of very basic swords made for legionaries. Uh, but in the early Middle Ages, you have these spectacular pattern-welded swords made for this, the extreme aristocracy. And actually, the assumption, and I'm sure it's correct, is that uh, people at a lower level, uh, at the very best, they've got a spear, because mm-hmm. the bit of iron at the top of a spear is not very much iron. Uh, whereas in the Roman period, you've got you know, all legionaries have a sword. Mm-hmm. They probably have body armor as well. It, I mean, the scale is just completely different. And there is this spectacular uh, craftsmanship going on, but at a super elite level. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember I, I was at uh, Sardis, I believe, and there were the remains of a late Roman factory there. It was claimed to be a fa- an armaments factory of some sort mm-hmm. that was run um, for the army. And we know these these things existed from you know, the Notitia and Nitatium, for example, mm-hmm. these you know state-run factories. Um, and it, it is remarkable. Of course, they're not factories in the industrial sense. Not like there's clanking gears or anything. But there are groups of people performing specialized tasks to mass-produce these goods, things like swords or shoes or whatever else for the legions, and then shipping them um, often very impressive distances, um, as you mm-hmm. were saying. Yes, and no, so I, I mean that, that mm-hmm. that's very interesting because there are there are there there are state-run enterprises right. uh, for the mm-hmm. army. But for instance, something like pottery, uh, the state has no interest in pottery. Mm-hmm. That's actually market. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. this is an, in, an an issue that's much debated. You know, to what oh, extent right. is the Roman economy actually run by the state and making things for the state? I'm very much on a wing, which is a lot of people are on that wing as well, saying mm-hmm. there is actually a very substantial market in, in mm-hmm. the modern sense. Uh, I mean, unaffected. Affected by the state in certain ways, because the state, for instance, maintains ports mainly for its own purposes. The state builds roads for its own purposes. The state produces coinage, uh, Mm -hmm. which it needs for taxation. Uh, And the state crucially provides peace. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there are, it says we're dependent on the state, but it is actually, I mean, exactly like our markets are dependent Mm -hmm. on the state. Um, But it, it, there is an independent market force at work. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's a way of putting it. That the state, you know, protects and facilitates, but it is not the economy. It's just the container of the economy in some sense. Yes, and um, I would and, argue mm-hmm. that actually the fact that the state can run factories uh, in order to make weapons and, as it mm-hmm. were, clothing for the military, is precisely because the wider economy can sustain mm-hmm. that kind of thing. The state actually needs the wider economy just right, like the right. wider economy needs the state, mm-hmm. which is exactly like today. Right, right. I mean, if our business. economy collapses, uh, the state uh, has to shrink. 
uh, as right, yeah. we are all witnessing at the very present moment. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, the, the, the grim part of that symbiosis. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Yeah. It's not a cheerful <laughs> moment. Oh, uh, yes. I, that, that's probably why. I, I always wonder why the fall of Rome is so popular. And I think there's just uh, this perennial echo where people look to, you know, the most epical collapse of the Western uh, memory, yes, I guess. And, but I would have said the fall of mm-hmm. Rome should cheer us up very considerably because the nature of the economic collapse at the end of the uh, Roman Empire, we have seen nothing remotely like <laughs> that. Now, okay, we should fear the possibility of that happening, but we have not seen anything remotely mm-hmm. like it. So we can be cheerful. Oh yes, yeah, so that is that is heartening. Um, we're not, not back to friable pottery yet, right? Um, but uh, but anyway, so to, to return to the what you were saying about the Roman economy and this, it's sort of the, the debate about its nature. I know there was, you know, at least a couple of decades ago, this, you know, one of these cloister debates about, you know, how how primitive or modern the Roman economy was, how embedded it was in social structures, um, and that seems to have been resolved in, I guess, kind of the a compromise modernist style direction. Um, where people seem to think there was growth in the Roman economy over time, albeit slow growth, um, and that uh, it functioned, as you said, you know, with state enterprise um, moving alongside and in many ways contained by private enterprise. Um, so I wanted to ask kind of a sense of general scale. You know, the size of the Roman economy is, by pre-modern standards, quite impressive, um, again, as attested by pottery and other uh, material records. And so I guess at what point, in your opinion, after the fall, does the European economy reattain um, its Roman levels, if we can judge that from any metric? It's a very complex uh, question, of course. No, but... no, it's a, it's a very interesting question. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, if you, if you take pottery, it's a long time afterwards. Uh, one's talking about, you know, after a thousand uh, but maybe pottery oh. isn't a good enough indicator. Um, it's it's really difficult to tell. But you're certainly talking centuries afterwards. And that, mm. I mean, Britain, the collapse is particularly dramatic. And the first uh, wheel-turned pottery is only made in the 700s. Uh, so that's sort of 250, that, and that's the first. And these are very mm-hmm. small industries, much more sort of local than the Roman ones. And really, the sort of quantities of material, uh, I would say 11th, 12th century. Oh, so, wow. I mean, that's that's pretty dramatic. Um, uh, yes, yeah. But we're, we're and, and, and Italy too. Uh, I mean, I've worked a lot in Italy. Um, you know, you dig a Roman site and... The you know the, the you and you filled fines trays with bits of pot, and you've got too much. Frankly, I mean you know you, you've got a problem processing <laughs> the stuff. You have no problem processing material in the sixth, <laughs> seventh, eighth, ninth. Uh, probably again eleventh, twelfth that you start to get that. Mm-hmm. But of course, yeah, there one or one would say you know well actually that's only one indicator. So it's difficult, but certainly centuries. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that, that is uh, an, an impressive uh, divot, you know, in the economic curve. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we've spoken about pottery as this this wonderful proxy for economic health and economic activity. Um, what are some other useful uh, proxies, in your opinion, for, for judging um, how, in, in the ecological record, for how an economy is doing, an economy and society are doing? Mm. And I mentioned, for example, things like, uh, like cow bones uh, and the size of like a cow femur, for example, as an indication of, uh, of such things. Yes. Uh, I mean, animal bones 
should be very, very good uh, because you can measure the size of the animal from the bones. Much more difficult, which would really what we want to know, which is the quantity mm. of these animals. Uh, with pottery, as I say, you can build up a sort of concept of, of quantity. With bones, it's so dependent on where they're throwing them away and how mm. many people there are. I mean, uh, but in my book, actually, I produce a little drawing which shows a pre-Roman cow, a Roman mm. cow, and a post-Roman cow. And the Roman cow is bigger than the cow before and afters. I actually have got into a bit of trouble with that uh, oh. because the guy who's a, a statistical anal analyst, uh, he, he contacted me and he said, I'm deeply shocked by this drawing because <laughs> what I'd done, I had taken, I'd taken the length of the bones mm -hmm. and the cow is taller, definitely. And we can say Roman cows are taller, but the drawing also shows that it's fatter. I built it to the mm. same size but larger. And this statistical guy said, well, actually, you can't prove that it's fatter. It might have been a taller, thinner cow, which makes it a less efficient cow than, mm -hmm. than I'd drawn. So it's much more difficult with, with other things. Though there is one thing which I use in my book, which I think is, and actually there's another thing I can think of now immediately. Uh, I mean, the thing I use in my book is tiles and bricks. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. In many parts of Europe, there isn't much stone. Uh, you need bricks. I mean, things like the Po Valley uh, or you know, huge areas of Britain. Uh, I mean, there just isn't stone. So, I mean, brick is the most effective uh, building material. Uh, tiles make a very good durable roof. You can make a roof with wooden shingles, which are just wooden tiles, uh, or you can thatch a roof. But it's nothing like as durable as a tiled roof. I have a friend who works in India, and he read my book, and that was the thing he most liked was the fact that I said that you know tiled roofs are good. He said yes, uh, in India that's mm -hmm. you know they say a real roof as opposed to you know one made out of perishable materials. Mm -hmm. um, and the Romans made tile and brick in huge, huge, huge quantities, and tile and brick is even. That's heavier than pottery. The amount of money you make from a brick or a tile uh, is really very small uh, in comparison to the mm -hmm. effort of moving it. But they move this stuff in massive quantities. Those industries just disappear. Uh, I mean, even admittedly in the Mediterranean, there's so much tile and brick from the Roman period knocking around that they can keep reusing it. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. But they more or less stop making new tile and brick. And I think, actually, if I thought of when does that industry pick up, it's probably 10th century. Oh, Do you start wow. making mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, large quantities of new bricks rather than using old Roman ones? I mean, admittedly, you've got the old Roman ones, so you might as well reuse them. But it's actually mm -hmm. more difficult using, using a brick because they come in different sizes. So mm -hmm. your, your mortar layers are all problematic, whereas a nice standardised new brick you know, put one there, put one there, put one there, put one there, and mm -hmm. it's, it's actually more efficient. I remember I was taken aback when I first discovered that bricks were reused, you know, in the Middle Ages. I was assumed that, you know, sure, stone, dressed stone, that makes sense, but that they would take the trouble of, you know, stripping the mortar from bricks and reuse those in walls. I think really brings across um, 
how much um, techniques, technologies have that's changed. That's true, though. Arguably, that's what we should be doing now. <laughs> yeah, uh, right, I guess. Yeah, recycle, uh, for reuse. For instance, in, I'm, just, I'm reading a book at the moment about immediately post-war Germany. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the German cities were just flattened. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're saving a lot of bricks and reusing them. I mean, it is actually a sensible thing to do as well. Hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. I just, you know, again, one of these things that I assume is so labor intensive, it wouldn't be worthwhile. Um, yes, well, I suppose yeah. one of the problems mm-hmm. is that these days, the mortar is so hard that actually ah. getting it off the brick right. would be not worth it. Whereas if you've got quite a nice soft line mortar, mm. you can probably scrape it off. So, so ah, I think right. these days, actually, we've we've created it. We've made a problem for ourselves <laughs> to make it more difficult <laughs> oh, yeah. to reuse them. All that, all that Portland cement, or, yes. but uh, um, and uh, and yes, well, well, thank you for all that. Um, you know, I, I think that I guess in my, in my imagination, at least, you know, the most impressive proxy, if you want to call it, of all um, for the Roman economy um, are the cityscapes, the public places of Roman cities. You know, these grand, often colonnaded fora, basilicas, uh, temples. Um, which define, in my imagination, I'm sure imagination, imagination of many people, um, what a classical city looks like. And these spaces um, seem to cease being maintained, um, vanish effectively um, over the course of late antiquity in most parts of the empire. And of course, it's a very gradual transformation and it takes place for many reasons in many ways. But I think you've gotten at one important part of it with your project on statues, uh, which ex- examined you know, the massive evidence for uh, public statues across the Mediterranean mm. world. Um, and, and from that data set, um, when and I guess how do you see these commemorative habits, um, which are so closely tied to this idea of the classical city, uh, changing um, across the former Roman world? A big question, yeah. I know, but uh... no, a big question. And uh, we're moving in a rather different direction because this is in really about kind of civic consciousness rather than about the economy. The the thing is that cities mm-hmm. are changed dramatically by the economy, unquestionably. But mm-hmm. at the same time, there is this internal political and sort of civic change about what a city is about. I mean, mm-hmm. the Roman city had this. Well, I mean, it's it's a it, it's a myth, but it's a living myth of it being, you know, a centre of civic politics, mm-hmm. where you have to have civic buildings to match that civic politics, and you have to put up statues to people in order to honour them. It is to some extent a myth in the imperial period, uh, because it's the idea that actually cities don't have much power. Uh, mm-hmm. The emperor has the power, and the imperial officials have the power. And actually, the statues they put up are generally to imperial officials in order to mm-hmm. flatter them. And towards the end of antiquity, that myth starts to crumble somewhat, and mm-hmm. they just stop bothering. And also, in terms of the civic spaces, I mean, as you say, our image of a Roman city is of a beautiful forum marble pavement columns mm-hmm. a capitolium facing out a market building uh a building for the curia for the um civic officials that all does go but it is also true that in late antiquity they they moved their focus of patronage to churches mm-hmm. and they start i mean something like st peter's old st peter's is mm-hmm. a was a very impressive building. And that actually stood right the way through the early Middle Ages. One shouldn't sort of 
underestimate. The, I mean, there is a degree of continuity in places like Rome, mm-hmm. um, you know, of impressive buildings. The, the old forum mm-hmm. totally disappears, but actually there's new focus of, of patronage around places like mm-hmm. St. Peter's, where St. Peter was buried. Right, which are, I guess, successors in many ways to those earlier classical public spaces, you know, if not in appearance, at least in uh, investment. Yes, and I mean, they've got a totally yeah. different function because they're, I mean, they're all focused around the new religion. Sure. And they're not civic in any way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if they're, uh, and they're not putting up statues to local benefactors. I mean, they're, they're, but that's a, that's a sort of political change that's mm-hmm. running alongside an economic change. Yeah. Well, and that's a very important distinction that I think, yeah, I sort of allied in my question there. Um, that, right, yeah, so the, the cities also always are, by the imperial era, an, an, an artifice, a construct that continues from some sort of almost culture, cultural inertia, really, into late antiquity. The idea that a city should look a certain way. And that whether it's because the economic changes, the economic conditions change so much, um, or the new religion, whatever else, changes thought ways so mm. much, mm. that investment is no longer a worthwhile one to make. Mm. Um, and yes, yeah, so, so right. I guess that that's important to, to qualify that the economic changes are part of this grander transformation. Which, but it you know, is together... important to realize mm-hmm. that um, cities are dramatically affected by economic transformation. Oh yes, of course. Well. Uh-huh. But the best indicator for that actually would be to look at private housing. Mm. Uh, I mean, private housing in the Roman period is solid. Uh, uh, I mean, admittedly, it varies a bit. If you, when you go to Britain, quite a lot of mm-hmm. it's in wood, but you'll always have quite a lot of impressive domestic housing um, mm-hmm. that all disappears I mean even in Italy which is a surprise it's remarkably difficult to find urban houses of the 7th 8th centuries um, they're almost certainly almost entirely of wood and and, hmm. a, a tri- and, and also unquestionably the number of people living in cities drops, I mean, dramatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Britain, cities disappear totally, but then Britain is a bit of an outlier. But I mean, right. if, in, in Italy, I don't think anybody would claim that, pe- that many people were living in cities in the 7th century as there were in the 4th, mm-hmm. for instance. I know you mentioned this in the book um, briefly about this apparent decline in, in general population as well as urban population. Um, and I know this is hard to trace you know, in, in the evidence because, of course, you're looking for things like elusive wooden houses and that friable mm. medieval pottery, whatever else. Um, but there does seem to be this you know, demographic trough um, in these centuries. Um, is that still the consensus? Am I, am I, is that an old idea that I'm uh, spouting here? Or? Well, as I say, it's... A- extraordinarily difficult to prove, uh, mm-hmm. mainly because people in the post-Roman centuries are so difficult to find. Mm-hmm. So is it that we can't find them or are they not there? But there are indications that areas of cultivated land um, shrink. Um, mm-hmm. So I think most people would agree that there was a fall in population, mm-hmm. but it's impossible to quantify of and course. actually impossible to prove categorically. Mm. Yeah, as, as so often, right? But okay, uh, that, that, it is very interesting. You know, thinking about this this world that's changed so profoundly, but we can kind of, it's hard to put our finger on the pulse mm. <laughs> and exactly how it's changing. Mm. Um, 
So, so speaking of your work in Italy um, on these different cities, um, so uh, obviously, you know, across Central and Northern Italy, cities changed profoundly across, say, the, the four or five centuries of late antiquity. But the city of Rome itself um, is perhaps the, the greatest example of at once change and I guess continuity in some ways. Um, could you talk a bit about how the city of Rome changes between, say, the, the Tetrarchic period, you know, say the year 300, and let's say, you know, the year 800 when, you know, uh, Charlemagne is showing up? Uh, again, a vast span of time. I'm sorry to throw so much at you in one question. But... No, no, that's fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Rome was exceptional uh, in the Roman period, much the largest city of the empire, um, population possibly around a million. We don't really know, but a very, right. very large population full of very wealthy aristocratic families uh, sustaining uh, and, a, and an emperor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Admittedly, the emperor in the 4th century stops living in Rome. Mm -hmm. He moves up nearer the frontiers, up to Milan and places like Trier uh, in Germany. And that probably represents something of a dent in the prosperity Mm -hmm. of Rome already in the 4th century. Then in the 5th century, um, there's the crisis of the Germanic invasions, there's the loss of control over provinces like Gaul, Britain, and Spain, uh, and crucially, the loss of Africa to mm-hmm. the Vandals uh, in the 430s. And unquestionably, the wealth of Rome shrinks. It's still a very important city in, in the 5th century. Uh, we can tell that from the fact that there is the gradual rise uh, of the papacy, the, the bishops of Rome, and they build some quite impressive buildings in the 5th century. I mean, the most obvious ones are Santa Maria Maggiore, which is mm-hmm. a very large basilica, and Santo Stefano Rotondo, which is of the mm-hmm. 450s. I mean, those are impressive buildings. In the 6th century, there's probably another pretty serious crisis happens with the wars between the Byzantines and the Goths, and Rome is besieged on several occasions and probably the city drops. It it probably goes down in stages. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the 6th century, Rome is... I think nobody would disagree with the statement that by the end of the 6th century, the population of Rome has dropped dramatically from the high point in the empire. I think people think, you know, I don't know, maybe... 20,000 people, even even that, that small. Oh, wow. Now, that's mm-hmm. actually by medieval standards, that's quite a large city. Oh, right, right. Uh, it's just that, you know, some right. Roman by cities were terms, huge. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and Rome is never unimportant and mm-hmm. never completely depleted of wealth because they, for instance, can maintain the great basilicas that they've inherited. Uh, St. Peter's is the obvious one, but there's San Paolo, mm-hmm. Fori Lemura, uh, Santa Maria Maggiore, San Giovanni in Laterano, those are all kept standing throughout the Middle Ages mm-hmm. and a host of other churches as well. Rome is the most important city of the West in the whole period. It's just that in comparison to the Roman period, it's dramatically shrunk uh, in mm-hmm. scale and size. And the things that have continuity of the churches only. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the walls of Rome are kept, but then that's because uh, they didn't really have the resources to build 
a more sensible looking one. Oh, right. rather smaller. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember um, last, my last time in Rome, I was there last year, I was visiting um, a Santa Prasa Day oh, um, yeah. you know, by Santa Maria Maggiore, which of course dates to the early 9th century. Yes. And you know, it's a very nice church. You know, it has those wonderful mosaics and that, that, that side chapel there. Um, yeah. But you know, that was, you know, from what I've read, um, by the era, in, your, in your own book, by the era standards, um, a very impressive church. Mm. And you compare that to Santa Maria Maggiore, and it's you know, perhaps a quarter of the size. You know, it's tiny you know, comparatively. Um, yes, really it, I mean, as you say, by early ninth century standards, that is a very impressive church. Sure, right. Mm-hmm. With mosaics to match, mm-hmm. it's only it's when you measure it against, as you and as you know, Santa Maria Maggiore, which is very very close by. Uh, right. Um, you know, it's, that, that's that's when you start to realise that things have shrunk. Mm-hmm. And I know you also say that uh, in, in Britain, for example, you know, uh, Dark Age or let's say seventh or eighth century Britain, um, you know, where when there is this project to build the first stone churches in several centuries, and there was Benedict Bishop um, who, yeah. who did this. Um, it, it's it's a revolution, a revelation to have these you know stone buildings again. Um, yes. what, what a um, you know, incredible that something I guess to me that something like you know masonry could become you know uh, an exciting technology, but it, it did. You know that, that had changed that much. Yes, no, no. There uh, is, there is no, there is no mortared brick or stone building uh, in Britain built between around four hundred and six eighty. Wow, uh, and I mean, that's, yeah, just, that's, uh, that's that's you know two hundred and fifty plus years. That's a, it's mm-hmm. a long time. We're talking it, about a you know recession, which is yes. you know, very long lasting, <laughs> very long lasting, yeah, very deep. Yeah, I, I mean, um, and I don't know much about um, early medieval British archaeology, but I mean, was there um, any urban occupation in, in this period that we know? I know London itself was abandoned for centuries. I mean, yes, what, London's what? complex because uh, when London is resettled, they've moved west out of the out of the Roman city. And they're mm-hmm. building, as it were, there's a sort of port area outside. But uh, late 5th, 6th century, early 7th century, I don't think there's anything in London. Wow. Uh, mm-hmm. The one city where some continuity of life is Canterbury. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's and that's actually why uh, when the Christian missionaries arrive in 597, uh, they actually establish... The Archbishopric in Canterbury. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Anywhere else, but uh, when one says some continuity, it's scattered small wooden houses. That's mm-hmm. what's been found so far. I mean, in Britain, effectively, cities disappear. Wow. And so but then, in I've, Britain, I mean, mm-hmm. the other thing that disappears uh, all over the empire. Uh, most dramatically in Britain is is um, a low value denomination mm-hmm. coinage. Oh um, right, there's, uh, which is hugely common in the Roman period. Mm-hmm. You can buy fourth century Roman coins for very small sums of money today mm-hmm. because there are so many millions of them around. And I'm not exaggerating; we're talking so many mm-hmm. millions of these knocking around. You can get a very nice little fourth-century coin. You can buy it for five pounds. I mean, it's not not difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and the, in Britain, there is no coinage at all, fifth, mm-hmm. sixth, uh, seventh century, except for 
tiny bits of imported gold coinage, which is super mm-hmm. high prestige stuff, a bit like the, the swords and right, the right, jewellery. The, the and on mm-hmm. the continent, copper coinage too effectively disappears. Uh, there's a little bit of silver and some gold. I mean, the other mm-hmm. thing, which I could have mentioned earlier, which I think is very interesting, is the disappearance of iron. Um, it's it's hard to prove this because actually if you're digging a Roman site with later uh, deposits on it, you will find iron in the later deposits, but it might well be Roman material that's been churned up in the soil and is therefore mm-hmm. uh, found. Because uh, whereas pots you can date because they change the types of pots, you can't date a nail. If you mm. find a nail, there is no indication of how old it is. But... We do know, for instance, that in the late Roman period in Britain, uh, people were buried in coffins, uh, which were nailed together. And you Mm. dig up these cemeteries and you find all these little nails. And they're wearing shoes which have got little hobnails on them. Ah. And you find the little hobnails. I mean, iron was just ubiquitous. Uh, and nails are a very basic thing. You know, they're they're the easiest way of banging two things together. (laughs) Dig an Anglo-Saxon site that doesn't sit on top of a Roman site. You don't find nails. I mean, iron's have effectively disappeared. I mean, that's another <laughs> indicator of, of a really basic thing that's gone. Mm-hmm. There's a very interesting book uh, written by uh, Robin Fleming, who's a, a US scholar, mm-hmm. uh, on the collapse of Roman Britain. And she points out that this actually has dramatic changes in terms of lifestyle as well, because... The pots that the Anglo-Saxons, sorry, the people in the post-Roman period were making (laughs) Mm. are very friable. They're not pots that you could put onto above a fire and boil water in. So Mm. actually you have to completely change your cooking techniques as well. I mean, this is a a change that isn't just a sort of economic shrinking. It's Mm -hmm. a change in lifestyle that's enforced by the collapse in the economy. So I suppose to ask, you know, the the big and perhaps the obvious question, um, you know, why was the fall of the Roman Empire, the Roman political system in the West, so catastrophic um, for the economy of the various parts of the Roman world? Of the, the central argument of your book, of course, but uh, do kind of yeah. outline well, that. It's, a, it's, <laughs> it's an interesting question and a bit of a mystery uh, because. <laughs> Uh, when people believed that the economy was entirely sustained by the state, then it's reasonably easy to understand because the mm-hmm. state does collapse. Uh, nobody, nobody disputes the end of the Roman state. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's something that everyone's in complete agreement with. <laughs> but if you believe that the Roman economy was partly a market economy uh, with, as it were, merchants, doing things under their own steam, uh, benefiting from the state, but not entirely dependent on the state, then it's much more difficult to understand why uh, it disappears so totally. Uh, And I don't think we really know. Uh, I argue in my book that it must be because of the levels of disruption that come about. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also argue, and I point out the moral for us, who live in a super-developed economy where 
the headphones that you're wearing, you know, have material from God knows how many different countries <laughs> put together by God knows how many different people and shipped in who knows how many different ways. I mean, the sophistication, which mm-hmm. far exceeds, you know, the Roman economy. Um, there is a possible argument that because it's so sophisticated, if it's disrupted, things go go bad uh, in a peculiarly dramatic way because mm-hmm. people don't know how to make pots. They don't need to have to. Uh, they buy them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't, you know, they don't need to think about how to make a pot. So, in a sense, local industries collapse because they've actually been because there aren't any local industries. They're dependent right. on 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 producers from very far away. I mean, that's a possibility. But I mean, it is in, it is interesting. It, it's it's. I don't think we'll ever fully know. I think what we we can chart the scale of the change, but actually knowing quite why is is always going to be problematic. Hmm. Well, well, thank you for that. And I remember you saying in the book that that Britain, you know, did not regress to its pre-Roman state. It regressed beyond its pre-Roman state. You know, it, it, again, the, these local industries had atrophied essentially, um, or yes, rather than in, in the pre-Roman in the pre-Roman Britain. There were local pottery industries mm-hmm. producing wheel-turned pottery, which was glazed wheel-turned pottery. There's a limited use of, of coinage. Uh, mm-hmm. And there are some quite large settlements, the big hill forts like Danebury, which mm-hmm. are you, reasonably, you could call them proto-towns. I mean, they're there before the Romans arrive. There's nothing like that in the immediate post-Roman. So actually, the Roman Empire had done Britain a bad turn that you've got them more used to living in a sophisticated world. So when mm-hmm. that sophisticated world collapses, they, they're actually thrown back to a sort of Bronze Age um, level. I mean, that's, you know, people can probably question that, but I think uh, it's well. true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, almost uh, wilted in the shadow of Rome, huh? Yeah. But, uh, uh, well, anyway, um, uh, uh, thank you again, Professor Ward Perkins. This is a wonderful explanation of what happened um, and uh, our, the ways we can explore how it happened um, through the archaeological record. If you haven't read it, I highly encourage anyone to check out uh, The Fall of Rome, End of Civilization. Uh, it's a great read um, and, again, covers a lot of things that we just touched upon here today. Uh, if you aren't familiar, uh, check out the Told Sound YouTube channel. Lots more stuff there on the Ancient World. But, uh, Professor Ward Perkins, uh, thanks so much for your time. Thank um, you all for listening. <laughs> and, and to everyone, uh, thanks for tuning in.